both are proponents of BRAC, the base realignment and closure process. Um, Mr. Smith and Mr. Preble have co-authored a recent article on the topic in Strategic Studies Quarterly. Um, copies on the table. <clears throat> and uh, in case you don't know where they stand, it's called Another BRAC Now. Um, but more than making the case for uh, the military to close uh, excess bases and save taxpayer dollars. The article um, explores the history of BRAC. Um, it seeks to upend some of the arguments lawmakers use to oppose BRAC. Um, and for instance, that, um, that communities are universally damaged when DOD closes installations um, that it doesn't need. So I'm going to stop talking for a little bit and um, ask Mr. Smith and Mr. Preble to provide their opening remarks, um, and I'll have a few questions before we turn it over to the audience. Thanks, Jim. Look, I really just want to thank you all for coming here this morning and really want to thank uh, Congressman Smith for his uh, advocacy for this. Um, I came at this myself many years ago. We commissioned a paper back in 2011 when um, there was considerable concern that cuts in military spending, which were anticipated, would have a devastating impact on the US economy. We commissioned a paper that explained why this was unlikely to be the case. Um, it was hardly the first such paper. There were many papers that, were show, that would show that uh, military spending in general is not uh, particularly stimulative. Uh, the Keynesian effects are fairly modest. Um, and that military spending as a share of the total economy was relatively small, so cuts, even even fairly large cuts, 10% or more, uh, would not have a huge knockoff effect uh, to the rest of the economy, which is all true um, and utterly irrelevant. <laughs> uh, economists have been saying this for years, and most people don't listen to economists, the dismal science. Um, so I took that as an opportunity. I'm a historian. I'm not an economist. And I took that as an opportunity to travel around the country from time to time, uh, study various places that have undergone uh, a base closure or some other defense realignment, and to tell their stories. Um, I've been doing this now off and on for six years, in addition to the other things that I do here at Cato. Um, and um, I've really welcomed the opportunity to tell these stories. A couple of the stories I told in the in the article in Strategic Studies Quarterly, Philadelphia, where I have sort of a personal connection. I was in graduate school at Temple University in the 1990s when the, Navy, uh, the Naval Station closed. Uh, it was a pretty grim time. I don't think anybody who goes to what's now the Navy Yard, uh, I, I don't know that anybody who goes there doesn't come away with a good feeling. It's, I encourage you all to go there and see what's going on in Philadelphia. It's an incredible story. Um, the other story which I knew nothing about um, and which you also would probably know nothing about is uh, the Bergstrom Air Airport, uh, Austin Bergstrom Airport, Bergstrom Austin Airport in uh, Austin, Texas. Um, it was a former Air Force base. Um, they were having a problem uh, back in the late 80s. Uh, their airport was too small and it was not suitable to what they needed in a growing city. Uh, and the closure of the Air Force base there really uh, solved a problem for the city of Austin. Uh, and I think you would find very few people in Austin who would look back on that experience uh, in a negative light. Now, obviously, there are many other cases. Every case is unique and different. Um, but what I try to do is tell these stories. And, uh, and I've done a few of them here. And hopefully, we can talk about a few more of the cases that I've studied uh, in our discussion today. 
great. And, and I think that's, that's a crucial point. <clears throat> Excuse me, sorry. Uh, to let people know that base closure does not have to be the catastrophe uh, for the community that many people have portrayed it, because that obviously is the biggest impediment to going forward with base closure is the politics of it. Um, but the thing that I really want to make everybody understand is it's, it's worse actually than, than just base closure. The military is significantly hamstrung right now in their ability to move assets. Basically, members of Congress seem to think that anything moved out of their district is the most egregious act ever committed, and they will fight to the death to prevent it. I remember we had in our bill last year, there were two, and I, uh, I think it was a C-27, C-29, I forget, sorry. Um, not one of the normal big planes that I'm used to, but they were trying to move two of them out of this place in Colorado to someplace else. And we actually had an organized effort from the Colorado delegation to stop them from doing that. That makes it very difficult for the military to function. I met with the commander of the, the tra uh, transportation command, and this was his number one biggest point. Let me move my assets freely so I can get them where they need to be. Because right now, they are restricted in all manner of different ways in terms of what they can do with, with not just their facilities, um, but with equipment. You know, try moving a few helicopters out of a out of an Air National Guard unit somewhere in the country. Um, there will be hell to pay. And that really restricts the efficiency of the military. Yeah, you know, just two stories that I'll close with, but really what we're talking about here with BRAC and everything else is trying to spend money as wisely and effectively as possible. And the notion that whatever our current force structure is and where it is placed is the one and only perfect force structure and cannot be changed is, is obviously ridiculous. Um, things change, things evolve, the size of the force changes. You want to have that flexibility, and right now we don't. BRAC would be the ultimate flexibility, but even if we can't get BRAC, I think there are things that we need to do to free up the flexibility. Uh, I remember talking with Senator McCain about this, and he probably know, seven, eight years ago now, he said he was you know, going up to campaign for a Senate candidate, um, as he put it, another losing Senate candidate. Um, so maybe it was 2008, I don't remember. But anyway, he's <laughs> um, up in North Dakota and he gets there. And I've done these things before where you go in as a surrogate for somebody else and they tell you what the issues are that they want you to touch on. He gets off the phone and said, look, the big deal is there's these five C-130s at this base that they want to move to California. We've come out strong against it. We need you to, you know, really, you know, you know, talk about how you're going to, you know, fight to keep these here. And I, I love John McCain. I really do. It was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> There's no way on earth I'm going to do that. You know, if the Air Force wants to move five C-130s, let them. And, you know, what's this got to do with the overall health of the economy? You know, he had a very, very aggressive approach, which, which I agree with. And then in my own situation, when I represented Joint Base Lewis-McChord, one of the things they do out there at uh, Fort Lewis was they take about 3,000 ROTC officers and they do six weeks of training uh, in the summer, uh, July and August. And I don't know, 10 years ago or so, the Army decided that they wanted to move that program to Kentucky. Now, aside from feeling bad for those young college students who would have to spend August in Kentucky instead of in the Pacific Northwest, where it's a much cooler climate, um, I was like, yeah, I don't know why they're doing it, but whatever. And, but, but the district went bananas. 
this must be stopped. And I'm like, most congressmen was like, okay, I, I just I have a question. Why? <laughs> um, I mean, I get that, you know, it's 3,000 people. They generate some amount for our economy over the course of the six weeks that they're here. But Lewis McCord is a rather large military base. We're, we're doing okay. And if the Army has a reason why they think it's going to enable them to more efficiently run their operation, you know, the more hoops we force them to jump through, the more difficult it is for them to do their job. Thank you. Right, so um, the uh, Obama and Trump administrations um, over the last several years, except for this year, and I, I think we'll get to that, um, have asked for uh, backgrounds to achieve cost savings um, and have either been rejected outright um, or blocked in some way uh, by Congress. And the, the irony is that BRAC was intended to end a stalemate uh, surrounding base closures. Um, can, would, would you mind walking us through a little bit about the historic intent behind BRAC and, and maybe some of the most more recent developments? Set the stage a little bit for you know, where we are now in the discussion in, um, in Congress. Well, I think, I mean, I get to the, the historic context is obviously it's difficult. And I guess my point about a couple of C-29s, a couple of C-130s, is that we've, we've sort of lost our minds on this issue. Um, but, but the broader issue of closing a significant military base, and I'll grant you there are examples where it worked out well for the local community, but well, let's be honest, there, there are examples where it didn't, um, where you know, you're talking about a number of jobs, depending on the size of the military base and where it's at, and politicians are going to be loath to allow you know, their district to lose 10,000 jobs or more, depending on the mm -hmm. size of the base. Mm -hmm. That's significant. The little point I was making up front is it drives me crazy when it's not significant. You still gotta be a pain in the ass for no good reason. Um, but when you're talking about a very late, so BRAC was come up with as a way to sort of depoliticize the process. Um, look, we're gonna give you one, we're gonna have a commission. It's not gonna be your choice. And then it's gonna be a straight up or down vote um, on the whole process. And it worked fairly well. We yes. did five rounds. Yes. Um, the last round wasn't necessarily as good as the others, but the last round was about more about realignment than it was about closure. Keep in mind, it happened in 2005 when the military was growing significantly, um, so there wasn't going to be as much savings there. Now, in recent years, I think what, what has happened, and keep in mind, the military has shrunk by a fair amount uh, since 2010. So, you know, you're talking, and, and there are these, the most recent study, I think, was last year, and I forget the exact numbers, but um, I think the Air Force was 29% over capacity, the Navy was 6%, and the Army was like 28% over capacity. So, significant number of facilities that the military does not think they need, they are being forced to keep open and run. So... And the one final historical point that I will make that, that has changed is people do not fully appreciate the way politics has evolved in the information age. I have a very long-winded explanation of it, but the, but the short answer is because of the ability to spread information quickly, 
very small groups of interests, I won't call them special because one special interest is you know, a legitimate interest to somebody else, but very small groups of interests have developed an enormous amount of power to stop things from happening that they don't want to happen. So BRAC has become more difficult because communities have organized more strongly to try and prevent it and have put much more pressure on their candidates for Congress and then their Congress person to, to say no way. So there is just a majority of members of Congress in the House and in the Senate who think that a vote in favor of BRAC is just such a terrible political vote that they don't, they don't even want to dare take it. Uh, because of that pressure that has been generated. And that's what's made it difficult to get a BRAC round passed and why I suspect um, General, sorry, Secretary Mattis and President Trump did not want to tilt at this particular windmill this year because we've had votes on the House floor, I think, mm-hmm. each of the last yes. three or four years. We get, I don't know, 170 votes maybe. Yep. Um, so it's proven to be very difficult politically to accomplish. One, can I add just one quick thing? If you look at how bases were closed in the 1960s in particular, there was too little attention paid to local concerns. And so you see uh, sort of an overreaction on the part of Congress sort of reclaiming their authority in the 1970s, blocking any closure anywhere. And then, and so you really see this pendulum swinging back and forth between the executive being able to do whatever it wanted to Congress being able to block everything. We're back now to sort of, without a brack, we're back to Congress being able to really stymie the big changes, what they can't entirely change is some of the small shifting around that the, the military is, still has considerable authority to shift around some assets, although, as you point out, people will sort of cry bloody murder even when it's something fairly small. Well, I, I guess what I wanted to get at was that, um, you know, the, the Pentagon has estimated um, 20% excess capacity. Um, uh, you'd outline some of the, the specifics for some of the services. Um, but then Secretary Mattis in the last year has wavered on those numbers, and I think that's made it, uh, that's kind of muddied the conversation. Um, the, with the Pentagon um, in this last BRAC round uh, not request, or, or this last uh, budget request not requesting a, a BRAC round, um, uh, Senator Jack Reed, uh, the top Democrat on the Senate Armed Services Committee, said that this is going to make it more difficult to ask for, you know, why would you ask for, a, for another BRAC round when the Pentagon hasn't asked for it? Right. That complicates, um, you know, the case for, a, uh, for another BRAC round. And then in addition, the, um, the, the top Republican on the Senate Armed Services Committee, Jim Inhofe, um, who's also the, the, um, the chairman of the Readiness Subcommittee, is a, is a, 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 a real gatekeeper for any kind of effort He's on He's not on actually the top Republican on the Senate. Sorry, the sec- number two. The number two, yeah, number two. Um, number, number two Republican on the Senate Armed Services Committee. And, and so, um, but, but he is, a, and, and he's a key gatekeeper. With all of those um, obstacles arrayed, you know, what's the, where do we go in the, in the near term if, if anywhere it can, um, you know, can Senator Inhofe be convinced? Um, can, can other lawmakers be convinced? I might say in our defense, we wrote the article before we knew that the Pentagon wasn't going to request a BRAC because they had requested a BRAC for the last seven or eight rounds. So uh, it, is, it is a different environment that we're in now than when we first started working on this late last year. So, I think where we're at, honestly, is 
collectively, most people have sort of surrendered on the idea of getting another BRAC round anytime soon. And what we're going to try to do instead is at least create some flexibility in terms of how the Pentagon can move assets and shut down some facilities. Because, and I'm actually not 100% clear on how this works, the Pentagon is not prohibited from you know, cutting in half the number of people at a, you know, if you're talking about a small facility. I don't, I don't know exactly where the line is crossed when you have to have congressional approval to, to make a change in a base. I mean, there are a number of different steps to, to make progress on that short of a full-scale BRAC, and I think that's likely what's going to happen. Um, personally, that's what I'm going to try to advocate for in the, in the NDAA this year is to get some language in there to give um, people like the transportation commander um, greater flexibility. Well, you know, now after laying out all the, the obstacles, I, it, it struck me that in the paper, um, you know, there were some arguments um, in favor of a BRAC that, that maybe could gain some traction um, specifically around the 2005 background that's often held up as a as an example of um, you know a, a background that cost more than anticipated um, it shuttered 24 bases relined 24 um, other bases um, cut 12,000 uh, civilian jobs um, but the the point that that the paper makes is that that, that is actually an atypical um, background and I was wondering if you could uh, talk about that. Why, why is that round different from the, from the four previous rounds um, that you'd studied? Well, I think it's because it fo- there are two key differences. One is that uh, they focus much more on realignment than on closure. There were some closures, and I've studied a few of those cases, but um, because there was a lot of shifting of assets, there was a requirement to create new facilities and new spending to accommodate the the functions that were shifted from one place to another. So that's point one. Point two is that the the 2005 background occurred at a time when the U.S. military budget was growing dramatically. We were fighting two major wars. Um, And so the fiscal environment was very different. I think it was a more permissive environment for precisely that kind of additional spending that was occasioned by the realignment portion of BRAC. Um, There's a a third sort of subsidiary story. I think that people who talk about BRAC and who live in this area around D.C. are more familiar with the realignment cases of the 2005 round and are sort of focused on the the challenges associated with that um, and and perhaps less aware of some of these other cases. So I'll give you two quick examples. Brunswick Naval Air Station in Maine was part of the 2005 BRAC round. In a very short time, they've done tremendous things up there. Um, And there were two bases, uh, Fort Gilliam and Fort McPherson in in the Atlanta area, um, which are are also, it seems to me, on a path to fairly fairly quick uh, reuse. So even uh, even in the 2005 round, which is sort of the you know, the redheaded stepchild of the, of the, the five backgrounds, even in those cases, you can see uh, examples of clear success. In, um, no, I th- in there was one final point on that, but I, I think emphasizing that BRAC now, in fact, one of the crit- criticisms of the BRAC rounds as they progressed is we were doing so much for the communities that we didn't save as much money as we could have. Um, but I, I don't really share that criticism. Uh, I think if that can get us realigned in a better way, the savings kicks in and it just year after year it accrues. 
And you know, if you can get the community buy off and take care of them, that's better. The other point about 2005 is sort of the leading edge of the point I made earlier about how much better different interest groups have gotten about organizing and protecting themselves. Because I think, and I could be, I, I know one thing, and I think the second, I know that there were a lot of things that were proposed in the initial report um, from the BRAC Commission for 2005 that after the politics weighed in, were changed. There were a number of bases that were proposed to be closed by the original conclusion of the commission that before they issued their final report, it was changed. And it was changed because of political pressure. Uh, the political pressure had gotten, you know, they'd gotten a lot better at it. Um, so that pressure was ramped up in 2005, wasn't as effective at closing bases as even it originally intended to be. I had wanted to um, probe a little bit on the idea that the that BRAC, um, in some cases, is um, that you know communities have made a turnaround. Um, you know, I noticed that the that the two examples in the report are um, Philadelphia and Austin. Some of these examples that of success stories seem to be in in larger communities where you would expect some um, some economic diversity. Mm -hmm. Is the is it the same for small communities, or, or do they tend to be hit harder? Well, my experience is that every case is different, obviously. Location matters a lot. And so some of the places that have had the, the most difficulty are because the, the sort of surrounding community and the surrounding economy is in a long, slow slide, and therefore it's going to be really hard to pull out of it. But location isn't everything. And one of the other stories in Philadelphia that I've told is from the late 1970s, uh, Frankfurt Arsenal, which is about 12 miles upriver from the Philadelphia Navy shipyard, was closed in the, in the late 1970s. And it's never really been redeveloped. There's some activity there, but it would be hard to be argue, argue that it's a success story just yet. And, and that's what, why planning and community involvement and sort of a vision for how these places are used matter a lot. And so it's not merely a case of location is the death knell or location location is going to save you. Um, there are some real lessons learned and best practices that can be applied. Uh, and again, we, we have an Office of Economic Adjustment at the Pentagon that's, that's job is to sort of help communities adapt. But again, those so, that sort of assistance is actuated by a BRAC. That, that, that's one of the key aspects of BRAC is it, it, it provides these tools uh, and some resources, as Mr. Smith says, uh, for communities to adapt. And right now we don't have that. Well, um, I, I wanted to um, ask if you could uh, elaborate a little bit on, on what, your, um, what your ideas might be for the, for the 19 NDAA. What, you know, what sort of, um, uh, you know, what sort of legislative activity we might see around, um, uh, you know, excess uh, facilities and how that might look, how might that be applied? Would that be, um, you know, uh, smaller installations or, or, you know, going after low-hanging fruit or how might, it, how might it ultimately look? I'm sorry, at this point, I really don't know. Um, I'm just now looking into the possibilities. I met with the transcom commander just last week. Um, so we're having that conversation at this point. So I'm not sure. We're, we're, we're exploring a variety of options. Okay. And, and in the meantime, I mean, there are, do you see, um, uh, you know, is DOD exercising some of the, the authorities that it already has maybe around, um, uh, you know, um, 
conversion authority, um, you know, that's ability to um, swap facilities with private entities. Are there some of those, or, or as those, right. those are relatively new? Some. Uh, it is my are. understanding that that base commanders have some authority to work with local communities when there is a uh, an asset that's that's sort of prized by the local community, a sort of flexible reuse authority that they can exercise on their authority with some oversight. But and so again, this gets to gets to can you reuse defense facilities without a BRAC? The answer is yes. Some of those authorities already exist and it would be possible perhaps to expand those authorities and sort of clarify the limits of those those authorities. But, but you couldn't you, you couldn't close a, a whole installation. It would no. be kind of piecemeal, individual. Yeah, I do think or, that one of the key criteria is numbers of people's effect, numbers of people right. affected, and so it's in the hundreds, not thousands. All right. Well, I've asked enough. Um, I wanted to turn it over to the audience um, to see if we have any questions um, for two speakers. Um, sure. Go ahead. Hi. I wanted to know, um, when you talk to other congressmen about the issue of BRAC and why they should support a new round, what arguments do they tend to find most convincing? Um, you know, obviously not that many, um, or, we, or we would be more successful. Uh, I, I think one of the problems is it's an issue that once you've sort of staked out your ground, I think this is where we could get in trouble, is you've got a, you know, I'm talking to a member, I don't know what that member has said back in his or her district, um, but it's quite possible that they, during the course of their campaign, they said, and I will fight to make sure that we don't have another BRAC to make sure that our community is protected. And then, you know, I could be Clarence Darrow, and no matter what I say to them at this point, um, <laughs> they've made a commitment that they're not turning around just because I asked them to. Um, I, I, I think the most convincing argument overwhelmingly is the money. Um, that basically, you know, I, I, I will say to members, you know, you're up there saying that we're not building enough ships. We're not doing enough for readiness. We're not, you know, we don't have um, as large an army as we'd like. So every year we're falling short of the amount of money you would like to have. How can we possibly afford to keep wasting money that is, that is low-hanging fruit to help save the money so you can do these other things that are, that are also priorities for you? That, I think, is, is the most effective argument. I would add to that that the efficiency argument that you led with, sir, is also important. Saying to, the, to people, the military needs the flexibility to move assets more readily. It has identified carefully um, what you know what its requirements are, and denying the military the, the, that authority is is forcing it to spend money, uh, you know, re uh, wastefully or, or not as wisely as, as otherwise. Just to <clears throat> add from your report um, that uh, Secretary Mattis said that the savings from BRAC could pay for 120 Super Hornets, uh, four Virginia class uh, submarines. The idea is to uh, <laughs> shift funding to. Um, readiness and modernization. Um, and um, to your question, um, Lucian Niermeyer, who's a, a OSD official on installations, I think in, in an interview with Defense News said that, um, that the idea is to kind of shift the argument. I mean, we, we're not seeing that coming out of DOD this year. Um, 
I'm just wondering, have, have, we, have they started to make that argument, even if they're not making the request? Has there been any interface from DOD on this with the Hill? Lucian has talked to, to think tank folks who have worked on this, and I know that's an issue that he you know, is really emphasizing the efficiency uh, angle. But um, I'm, I'm not sure on Capitol Hill. You all would know that better than me. More effectiveness and lethality, I think, yes. is what he's... Yes, uh, exactly. Uh, yeah. A little last year they tried, this year not so much. All right, sir. Sort of a long-winded question, yeah. I'm... Uh, was born in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I live in, you know, native Californian. There's a reason I'm no longer a Californian. It's BRAC, because I was a civil engineer at the Presidio of San Francisco uh, before they closed it, early 90s. Question is, um, have they, number one, um, with, with all the, you know, congresspersons from, like, I call the Bible Belt to Middle America trying to defend the bases in their district, why do we still have bases still in, you know, glamorous, high-cost, environmentally sensitive California, uh, uh, you know, uh, why do we still have Parks Reserve Forces training area in Dublin, California, you know, in, in 1995, I remember reading a thing about uh, a congressman from the area uh, saying, please, please, please close Cam Parks. Right. And uh, why do we still have Fort Hunter Liggett and that kind of thing? My argument is we closed Camp Parks, we could free up land for a development like Tyson's Corner, a, tra a transit-oriented development uh, right near one of the most expensive cities on earth. So let me, let me, I, let me take that question. I, I've, I've actually talked to, to Lucian about this too. <clears throat> you, you definitely have instances in which, you definitely have instances in which communities have identified a, a local base that they believe they could make more productive use of. Uh, and we see this fairly regularly, but the Pentagon is understandably quite anxious to retain control of deciding where those facilities are most required and being sort of mindful of community sentiment, but not being sort of overly solicitous. Is that an argument? I mean, does that seem reasonable? And so I think, sure, we can all just maybe off the top of our heads, we can all think of places like you've just named, sir, and say, well, this obviously could be put to better use, and the Pentagon on a case-by-case -case basis would say, no, as a matter of fact, we actually need. So I think it needs to be, my point would be, is this needs to take account both of the military's needs and the community's interests, both. Both are important. Uh, and, and what we have tended to do, it seems to me, is sort of overcompensate both ways, and now we're sort of, it seems to me right now, sort of, sort of overcompensating in the interest of, of preventing any uh, realignment or closure uh, at the expense of military efficiency. Yeah, okay, well, so like, you know, the yeah. Bay Area's example, San Francisco Bay Area, they closed. Right, no, I studied, I, look, I've, I've written about the Presidio, I've been to Alameda, I've been to Fort Ord, I have plans to go to Mare Island and to Treasure Island. I look, there are many instances in Northern California, Mather and Sacramento. So yes, you are correct. There are many instances in many places. The key is in sort of, again, balancing the interests of the military and the interests of the local community. Sir? So conditional on a BRAC round being approved, what is the selection process for bases? So you say there's like community ties in play, there's military ties in play, but is like the beginning universe every base or is there a narrow subset contingent on strategic goals? I think that 
theoretically, it would include all bases, but the military has in mind already certain facilities that they that they have identified based on based on the service requirements and what they expect the, the, those to be in the future. Um, where, they're, they're, where the excess is, where the, where the surplus is. Um, but then having identified that list, then they, they winnow, winnow the list down and then present those that, that sort of meet the, sort of at the highest criteria, the, those that are least um, uh, useful or being underutilized the most. Uh, and then the process is to take into consideration um, uh, other arguments, including the community input. That's part of the BRAC process. I have a, sorry, go ahead. No. Um, I, I have a question uh, for you both about the, some of the underlying assumptions. Um, you know, we saw um, uh, Secretary Mattis, um, you know, mention the 20% the, the number and then waver on that. Um, you know, my sense is that it kind of became a battleground on Capitol Hill over is that number, you know, what are the underlying assumptions here? What, is, what really is DOD's excess capacity? Um, you know, what do, what do we know about the, um, about the way that that's calculated? And, and do you have confidence in the, in the number um, that it is 20% or? Well, I mean, it, it is obviously debatable. Um, you know, I, just on the basic numbers of it, when you look at how large our military was in 2010 and, you know, the lower number of, you know, troops we have um, in the Army and the Marine Corps, the lower number of the ships, the lower number of planes, uh, I mean, just from a basic number standpoint, um, you know, it, it seems logical. Um, but I don't know about the, you know, I mean, obviously there's a little bit of debate on, you know, which... What would the exact right number would be? Yeah, I found the I found the the fighting over is it twenty percent, is it twenty one, is it nineteen to be a little silly, to be honest with you, because BRAC does not eliminate all excess capacity. BRAC reduces excess capacity. So you're going from whether it's tw 19 or 21, going to 16 or 18. It's not like you're denying the military any flexibility to reallocate in the future if requirements change. Um, and ultimately, we have to be honest about this, in a true, honest to goodness, national security emergency, if we found ourselves sort of desperately short of land and infrastructure to support a dramatically larger military in the distant future, take it. I'm pretty confident that the United States of America would figure out a way to provide the necessary resources to its military. So I've found that argument from the very beginning to be very sort of misplaced. And ultimately, it, let, let's remember, BRAC is about reducing excess, not eliminating it. And this is a larger point that I apologize. I have to go. I have to get back to a hearing. But, you know, I, I think that, that that's a very good point about, you know, if an emergency comes up, you know, we have surge capacity and we always have. And I think this... This is a broader problem with the military budget. And this is part of why I got into BRAC in the first place. And it can best be summed up as saying, we have an idea of a national security strategy that is way beyond the resources that are available to pay for it. And it didn't start just with, with President Trump's outlandish statements about, you know, I want to forget how many ships and how many nukes right. and how many troops and all this Lots. stuff. Yeah, a whole bunch more than we, actually, right. than we have right now and a whole bunch more than we can actually afford. Um, so how do, you, how do you match the national security strategy 
to the actual budget in front of us. And the trap we fall into is the one that you described. And this is the way things work at the Pentagon and the way they work when they communicate with us over on the Hill. You can imagine any number of outlandish, terrible scenarios um, with Russia, with China, with terrorist groups, with North Korea, with Iran. And then you can say, are we ready for that? We can't be ready for everything. Uh, former Secretary Gates had a way of putting this that I, I really disagreed with his conclusion, but he said, you know, you can look at our track record in terms of predicting the next conflict, and that track record is 100%. We've been wrong every time. And, and his point was, you know, we have got to get better at preparing uh, to be ready for what's coming. Whereas the conclusion that I reached from that was, I don't think we're, I mean, always breathtakingly stupid, I think it is more likely that the reason we've been wrong is it's, it's, it's not a predictable thing. The world is inherently unpredictable. So what we need is not to you know, spend ourselves into the ground imagining every nightmare scenario you can, but have a surge capacity. You know, whether that's guard and reserve or the simple fact that if an emergency comes up, we know we will marshal our resources and go do it. If we try to build a military that is going to make us 100% ready for every possible nightmare contingency, we'll bankrupt the nation. Um, And I don't think that's in any of our national security interests. I I do, I see one more question, but um, then I have to get back. Do we have time for one more? One more. One more. Uh, so you say uh, that we can't be ready for every single scenario. Um, what about um, um, natural incidents like, um, let's say, uh, another Hurricane Katrina-type incident? Uh, uh, would there still be um, flexibility to um, react to disasters like that if the, if the military or FEMA needed um, um, bases? Certainly, and they will. I mean, look, you know, we can be ready for any one of the nightmare scenarios out there. I'm not saying we can't be ready for any of them. I'm just saying we can't be ready for all of them. Um, and certainly, you know, having a guard and reserve force and also that can, can, can respond. And, you know, I mean, everybody's life's kind of like this. You think you're ready for stuff, and then, you know, and all of a sudden, 10 things happen in the same day. I'm having one of those weeks myself. Um, and then all of a sudden, you're not as prepared as you thought you were. So, you know, and I think we ran into that a little bit with multiple, you know, we're still fighting wars in Afghanistan, you know, we're in Iraq and Syria and a whole bunch of other places. We had three catastrophic storms, not to mention the massive wildfires that happened on the West Coast. I mean, look, life happens. And sometimes it overwhelms you in the short term and you've got to surge and do your best to, to get, get ready for it. Um, but certainly of the things that we ought to be ready for, it is to protect ourselves in the case of a natural disaster. And I think we can do that. And I think we're absolutely trained and prepared to do it. Now, if 10 of them happen in the same week, um, it's going to stress us a little bit. Right. But my point is I don't think we should say, well, 10 of them might happen in the same week. Therefore, we've got to have a $1.5 trillion defense budget to make sure that we're ready for that. Because the cost of doing that right. is also something that, that, bear, that, that forces our country to bear a burden. Um, I do have to run. We have to go talk thank you. about creating thank a space core. But thank uh, you all very much. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. I just want to thank the speakers. Thank you all for being here. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you.